Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is Pooja Kandalwal. She's a principal investigator at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Uh, She's looking at um, studies of the gut, the virome, the fungome, the microbiome uh, in a situation called acute graft versus host disease. It's a life-threatening complication uh, after a bone marrow transplant. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, Pooja, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. Good. So um, how often do people get bone marrow transplants? Like how prevalent is it in the U.S. and then around the world? About 10,000 patients annually undergo a bone marrow transplantation uh, in the United States. And uh, probably a similar number or perhaps a little bit higher um, in other parts of the world. So it's not a terribly common occurrence. However, it is a curative modality for a lot of life-threatening underlying diseases such as cancers, specifically leukemias, um, that are hard to treat or, you know, have gone into remission, but then they come back. And additional diseases such as uh, immune deficiencies or disorders of the hemoglobin, such as sickle cell anemia. So, yeah, and what uh, conditions require a uh, bone marrow transplant? Um, So bone marrow is essentially a very fascinating organ, if you'll allow me to elaborate just a little bit. Um, So, you know, it's a living organ, essentially. It's uh, the soft part in our long bones, but it is a very busy factory that's producing all of the cells that make up our blood. Um, So it makes our white cells, our red blood cells, and our platelets. And our red blood cells are responsible for carrying oxygen. Our white blood cells form our immune system. So if you have abnormalities in any of these cells, uh, you can try as a curative approach to replace the parent cell from which all of these additional cells arise called a stem cell with a healthy stem cell from a healthy donor. Um, But it's not as easy as just saying, all right, I'm just going to take stem cells from someone else very randomly and just give them to the person who needs them. Because an important aspect of our immune system, in addition to just trying to fight off infections, is recognizing what is our own versus what is not our own. And our immune system is supposed to, when it finds something that is not, but that it does not recognize, it's supposed to um, attack it and try and get rid of it. And so really, in order to accomplish a successful bone marrow transplantation, we have to find a donor whose immune system is as well matched to the person who's undergoing a bone marrow. One question, what does that mean? I mean, I can understand matching blood type, let's say, for instance, but how do you match an immune system? What do you look for? What are the factors? There are these sort of like labels or proteins on our white cells, which is called HLA or human leukocyte antigen. And we can look at those proteins in, in the person who's going through a bone marrow transplant and also the person who's going to donate. 
and we can try and make sure that those are as similar as possible. So you're right, actually, very okay. similar to a blood type, but um, just a little bit different. Are you transferring, are you drilling into the bone, sucking out marrow, and then through a hole, like, you know, putting a tube in there and pushing marrow back into the bone? I mean, like, how do you envision this transplant? What does it look like? So that's an excellent question. And I think a lot of people have a conception of transplant, you know, from like a liver transplant or a kidney transplant where you take out an organ and then you surgically place it in the person who needs it in their body and then you kind of sew them back up. Um, but that's not really how a bone marrow transplant works. We collect bone marrow, as you mentioned very accurately, by sucking out the marrow from the donor. It looks like a bag of blood. That's really what it looks like. And you can then give that specific bone marrow through an IV to the person who needs it. And these cells are really smart. They swim around in the circulation for about one to two hours. Then they know where to go. They know that they need to go into the long bones. There's a space over there uh, where they sit and they um, then start growing. So if you think about uh, bone marrow transplantation, it's a little bit like gardening. We're planting some seeds, and then we're just waiting for them to grow. So you just have to inject the what the bone marrow substance it, it, again, it has the consistency of blood. I mean, Absolutely. you're injecting it just into someone's vein, and yeah. then it travels and goes where it needs to go. Absolutely, yeah. It's a it's That's a good. fascinating organ. But do you have to take out the person's existing bone marrow, or will it naturally displace it? Like, what will happen there? Existing stuff? Uh, that's an excellent question as well. Um, we have to get rid of the person's bone marrow by giving them high doses of chemotherapy uh, and sometimes radiation uh, to try and get rid of their bone marrow entirely. That allows a space to be created for the new bone marrow to sit and start. So, okay, so you give chemo. Um, how do you know that the pers person's bone marrow has been? eradicated you know what biomarkers of what will happen and how fast of a process is that it's a very carefully planned process where children are or even adults are given chemotherapy that's specifically calculated to wipe out essentially if you'll allow me to use that word uh the bone marrow and you can see signs of that by looking at the complete blood counts every day what you'll start noticing is that patients blood counts start dropping, where the, and eventually it'll get to a point where they will stop making any blood, any white blood cells, or platelets on their own, because they have lost the ability to do that. So by just looking at a simple CBC, you can tell that the bone marrow has stopped working. And if you do not give these patients the new stem cells, their bone marrow will not recover. So these Doses of chemotherapy have been studied um, for decades and have been carefully planned out. And that's what we typically end up doing. So once the person's, um, you know, in a state where they're ready to receive the transplant, I mean, they probably don't have long. It has to happen very quickly, I would guess, right? You're correct. And as you can imagine, in someone who's not making any blood cells or white blood cells, they require frequent transfusions and they are at extremely high risk of infections. So they are specifically 
um, in the bone marrow transplant unit where even the air that they breathe is specially filtered and they are on antimicrobials uh, to ensure that they don't catch any infections. These are preventative antibiotics. Um, and we are following them very, very closely for signs of infection because these children can get very, very ill since they don't have an immune system. Their new immune system has not grown yet, but their existing immune system is gone. That period between the disruption of the existing immune system and growing the new immune system takes about two to three weeks. That's a critical time in bone marrow transplantation and one that can potentially be very scary for, for everybody involved. Yeah, what is the patient experience once they get the transplant? Um, what happens over the first, you know, one, two, three days, first few weeks, if it works and if it doesn't, what happens? Um, I would say that the first two to three weeks are fairly tough on patients and also their families. Children, uh, you know, will lose their appetite, will lose their energy to do things. They will not feel well. Uh, they're experiencing all of the effects of the chemotherapy that they have received. They're not making any of their own cells. They'll probably have fevers. Um, so they don't feel well at all. They're all still, also still experiencing some nausea or vomiting from the chemotherapy that they have received. Um, sometimes they can get some sores in their mouth that can be very painful. So it's, it's a very difficult time for the children who are going through transplant in the first two to three weeks. And also, if you can imagine, it's very hard for the parents as well, because they're seeing their children not feeling well, um, and there's really not much to be done. Uh, we have excellent supportive measures for our kids. However, all of this will get better when the new donor cells grow. It's very challenging, and also I'm very happy to say a rare occurrence that the bone marrow cells don't grow back. That specific event is called graft failure, and that happens rarely in about maybe 5% of cases only. And that is a very scary uh, prospect. We will need to rescue these patients with some form of stem cells so that they can survive. Yeah, right. So what's... Um... Has anyone studied what chemotherapy does to someone's microbiome? I mean, Absolutely. It's, obviously it's very cytotoxic, but what about, you know, again, microbiome? Who knows about the virome, the fungome, et cetera? You're, you're absolutely correct. And this brings me back to even maybe 10 years ago when we, or most people in the transplant community, used to believe that all bacteria were bad, all of them. And a lot of times and a lot of centers would sterilize the intestinal tract by giving antibiotics to ensure that the burden of you know microbes was low but as what we realized as we have studied a little bit more about on this field is that there is this balance of beneficial bacteria and harmful bacteria and just the just the act of going through a bone marrow transplant disrupts this balance tremendously and that is very pro-inflammatory for patients. And when we think about what acute graft-versus-host disease is, it is basically an immune response that the new immune system has to the host. Because the new immune system, you know, is probably not used to living in the host, 
Now it is in this very inflammatory environment and is more prone to being inappropriately activated and causing harm. So what we have realized is that it's really important to have or try and restore to whatever extent we can that balance, the beneficial versus the harmful and not allow it to get skewed. Um, a lot of research endeavors are now focused on this in trying to restore the balance either by ensuring that patients going into transplant have a, a robust balance to begin with or ensuring that as they're going through transplant through critical time points, we do interventions to try and bring that balance back because we recognize that just the act of receiving chemotherapy is going to disrupt the balance. And if you add to that, children who have fever, they are put, being put on antibiotics. So we're, ru we're ruining the balance even further. So that is really- Yeah, I was going to say the, uh, the, the donor, I don't know, it just seems frustrating. Antibiotics are just given for everything. It doesn't even matter, you know? So the donor, are they given antibiotics before the donation is harvested? And then the person receiving it, are they given antibiotics before they get it? Or while they're getting it? And then how does that affect the whole thing? Thankfully, no. Both donors and recipients are not receiving antibiotics just because they're going through a bone marrow transplantation. So I think that part is, is you know, important. We are trying to still figure out what the donor intestinal microbiome means as far as the health of stem cells. But for the most part, I do not think that that makes that as much of a difference as what the recipient's um, intestinal microbiome is looking like, because that's where these new immune cells are being grown or, or recovering. That is the inflammatory environment or the the non-inflammatory environment in which they're growing. So the donors do not receive any antibiotics. The recipients would only receive antibiotics if they were having signs of infection. Not the vast majority. Well, that's good. That seems different to other transplants, other organ transplants. It seems like uh, the donor gets antibiotics and then the organs harvested and then the recipient gets them. So, I mean, who knows the disruption from doing that? Maybe. Uh, Maybe that's why bone marrow transplants have a higher, you know, efficacy rate. I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. And w once again, this was not how it used to be. Just 10 years ago, we were giving antibiotics left and right. But we have now realized the harm that that causes. And as a transplant community, have truly been very mindful of what we're doing, how we are disrupting the balance and our Pulling back, even though it sounds a little strange that we're being a bit conservative in children whose immune system is so compromised, I think we're being very careful about how we approach this and being thoughtful about the right course of antibiotics to use. Um, and I, I think we're seeing we're seeing meaningful changes in our outcomes with these interventions. But what are you doing? Are you looking at the uh, the donatable? Marrow and characterizing if it has microbes attached to it, and does it have its own microbiome, even if it's you know limited? And how does that correspond with the recipient's blood or the recipient's marrow? Is that being looked into? We're not looking at that, but we are doing a lot of research efforts about looking at the changes of the intestinal microbiome over time in transplant patients. Um, so. 
based off of a lot of studies that were done and where we saw a lot of disruption, we realized all the critical time points where the disruption happens and where it would be very important to try and have a more balanced approach to try and restore this. There are lots of um, efforts that are happening all over the transplant community uh, of trying to restore some of the beneficial uh, bacteria. Some patients in the adult world are being fed uh, raffinose, which is potato starch. And that's an indigestible soluble fiber that allows for the growth of uh, beneficial bacteria that's being studied in clinical trials. We did uh, a study of giving human milk to our patients uh, to try and protect their intestinal microbiome because we are in this unique position of transplanting very young infants with immune deficiencies. There is a lot of controversy in, in the immune deficiency world about should these children be allowed to breastfeed because of the concern of transmitting viruses from the mother to the baby. We have mostly allowed our patients who are very young to breastfeed as they go through transplant and anecdotally observed very um, positive outcomes. Let's think a little bit about how our intestinal microbiome gets formed, really. When we are born, our intestines are completely sterile, but it's our first food that starts to establish the microbiome. And in human milk, there is a specific component called human milk oligosaccharide, which has, a, which has no nutritional value for the baby. It's there to start an intestinal microbiome, and it allows for the growth of beneficial bacteria. So what we decided to do was administer human milk to children up to the age of five in a randomized trial where 66% of patients received human milk and 33% of patients received standard formula. And we compared the outcomes between the two and were pleasantly surprised to see lower markers of intestinal inflammation and lower sort of indicators of uh, pro-inflammatory pathogens in children who receive breast milk. Question here. So is there such a thing as a breast milk bank? I think there should be for sure. Yes. There's blood banks. So yes, there, is there, there is. one? Absolutely. Okay. Yes, there is. Who, who, what, what kind of indications are people given uh, milk from the breast milk bank? And is it given only to babies or is it given to, you know, teens and adults and all that? And, you know, is it, is it going that extensive? That's an excellent question. Uh, I actually am unaware of any indications where teenagers or adults are given uh, human milk. And I think this is one of the challenges that we face as researchers when we are trying to think about the applicability of our intervention to a larger population. The current breast milk banks provide donor milk to very premature infants. But in collaboration with a, a human milk bank, we were able to get a study funded where we administered human milk to children up to the age of five. Um, so we were able to do that. Um, but once again, as you mentioned, this is, this is a limitation of the applicability of, of this particular intervention. So we're trying to think of how to, how to move this a bit forward. Yeah, I mean, if the milk was screened for, you know, certain viruses and certain problems, et cetera, and it made it through the screening, I mean, besides the cultural weirdness of it, 
you know, which could be overcome. If I'm getting someone's blood, what's wrong with me getting their milk? I mean, it's like it, it's a food essentially. I'm not getting it from the person directly. I mean, uh, is that do you know if that's even being looked into for uh, you know adults and older people? Um, actually, yes. So I am now trying to uh, design a study of of administering the human milk oligosaccharide component of human milk to um, children and young adults. The name of that specific human milk oligosaccharide is called 2-fucosalactose. It's available as an oral supplement. Um, it's like a powder and you can just mix it okay. in you know, water and then and drink it. And it will have the similar benefits of, of a human milk oligosaccharide. So I think that's, that's you know, probably a very applicable way of providing people with this specific intervention, given its benefits. Yeah, definitely. Um, what else are you looking at in terms of the, uh, you know, the microbiome of people involved in transplants? Are you specifically researching it or like what's your role? Overall research focus um, is in trying to maintain intestinal homeostasis around bone marrow transplant. What that, by that, what I mean is trying to make sure that the intestinal microbiome, all of the inflammatory markers, all of the uh, overall markers of intestinal injury are as low as possible because we know that all the immune activation that happens after transplant happens in the intestine. And the challenges of transplant, including acute graft-versus-host disease, which is a life-threatening complication, the uh, inciting events all happen in the intestine. So yes, I am, I am involved in several trials um, looking at the intestinal microbiome, studying it, and trying to modify it. I mentioned the human milk study. I mentioned my 2-fucosalactose study as well. What was interesting as we were looking at the intestinal microbiome in our human milk patients was that perhaps the bacteria were not as different as what we would have expected, but we could see that their microbiomes of the children who received milk and the children who received standard formula was different. That led us to wonder if the differences could be because they had different viruses in their intestinal flora or different fungi. That led me to the current work where we try to investigate the composition of the intestinal um, fungome and the virome. Now, this is not previously described, and they, they do exist. They probably play a role. We are just unaware what that role is. So I'm kind of fascinated to um, tease that piece out as well. I mean, the microbiome, I know, is being studied all over the place, but the virome, how do you study that? I've heard it's very difficult to do it. Like, how do you know which viruses are, I mean, can you say like one phage, one, one bacteria, and you know, like which of the bacteria phages in a sample? And what about the viruses that are, you know, commensal with our cells? Like, how do you differentiate and find out what's even in there? That's an excellent question. Um, and I can answer this in perhaps, you know, three different stages. Uh, yes, to actually study viruses and isolate viruses, the entire methodology of doing that is very different from studying bacteria. And so that was a little bit of a learning curve, but I'm happy to replicate that very successfully uh, after sort of collaborating with some other groups who have done that as well in other diseases. Um, and the way you would study it is otherwise similar to how you would study bacteria, where we would do uh, some sort of deep 
uh, genomic sequencing and try and identify the viruses and then compare them to existing libraries. Now, the harder question is to try and understand what the role of each of these viruses is. Is it, are these beneficial? Are these harmful? Um, are they just kind of sitting there, harmless, uh, minding their own business? I think, I think that's a, a harder question. But the first question that probably we need to ask is, what is there? I don't think we know. And then once we know what's there, I think then we can try and tease out what changes over time, correlate that with how patients are doing clinically. Because clinically, transplant patients experience viral reactivations very commonly. And so it will be interesting to try and correlate those intestinal viral changes with clinical changes. Yeah, well, I mean, again, has anyone even successfully sequenced the virome? Do we even know if we're catching all that's there? I mean, are there any papers on it? Is there a lot of diversity there? Is it, is it much more than the diversity of the bacteria within us, for instance? Like, again, are there multiple phages that can infect a certain bacteria in us and that multiplies the number of viruses that are in us? Um, yes, we actually, uh, there is limited information about um, the intestinal virome in transplant patients. We have some preliminary data in our patients. So very interestingly, we found bacteriophages in the stool in several patients who received human milk compared to patients who uh, were receiving standard formula. The literature on bacteriophages is, is probably a bit more well-described in inflammatory bowel disease, not so much in, in bone marrow transplantation. But if we try and look at their literature, it's a little conflicting as to whether these phages are beneficial or whether they are you know, harmful. We also, however, found presence of adenovirus in stool of a few of our patients. Now, adenovirus is a common childhood virus. We've all been essentially exposed to this when we were children. and We have developed immunity against it. It's a common virus that reactivates because children are, are losing their immune system, essentially. Um, and what we found was that this virus was present in the stool before children actually experience clinical adenoviral reactivation. So there is, we have some limited information from about 60 children's samples that we looked at before transplant and after transplant. But you're correct. The information about the intestinal virome is limited. But I think that's also what makes it so fascinating to study. Hmm, interesting. Um, what do you think is going to be the biggest... Um... I know differentiators on the success of, uh, you know, graft versus host syndrome and making these transplants, uh, you know, as, as successful as possible. Um, I mean, if it's multifactorial, I understand, but what is it look like? What's the ideal future way of doing this look like to you and why, even if we don't know yet exactly? I truly think that the future way to do this is personalized medicine. Um, where we would all, before transplant, have our intestinal microbiome evaluated and uh, and whatever deficiencies or interventions would be required to ensure the restoration or um, you know improvement in the intestinal intestinal microbiome would be initiated even before starting transplant. 
to ensure optimal success. I also think there is a role for fecal transplants as well, uh, although that is still not very clear. Um, but truly, I believe that the future of transplant in order to ensure success is not a one-size-fits-all approach, but more individualized and personalized. Well, yeah, I know. Every situation is different. That's always the case. So, you, so you're thinking bolstering the microbiome and therefore probably the immune system before the transplant, then the chemo, then as soon as possible without interfering with the chemo, um, continue to bolster and then Absolutely. continue to support from there? Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Because just imagine if we're starting out with very low beneficial bacteria to begin with, there are some patients who have who have what is called dysbiosis or their their microbiome is imbalanced to begin with for whatever interventions they have experienced before um, going to transplant because of their underlying disease. And then when we give them chemotherapy, it just aggravates it even more. So would it be helpful to try and at least have them start off in a in a better position. We're not doing that right now. So I, I, I do think there's a role for that. Well, when a child needs a bone marrow transplant, I mean, what condition are they in? Why do they need it? It's, it seems like a pretty, you know, obviously it's an extreme but necessary measure. But what's going on with them? I, didn't, I forgot to ask you that. Like, what are the conditions that necessitate bone marrow transfer? So let's think about just, you know, our bone marrow and our, and our all of our immune and the cells that the bone marrow is producing. And the fact that all of these arise from a parent cell or a stem cell. So a lot of times when you have disorders in, let's say, your white blood cells, which could be either because you have an underlying leukemia, which has relapsed, um, or if uh, patients have an underlying primary immune deficiency, which has no cure and they may ultimately die from their immune deficiency. These would be some of the reasons why someone would go through a bone marrow transplantation. It is a curative approach. It is a high-risk curative approach, but it is truly reserved for um, conditions which are life-threatening. So, I mean, would bolstering work in those kind of kids that are in those situations? I mean, do you have much time to do it? Like, like how long you know, before it, it becomes obvious that a kid needs a bone marrow transplant, how long do you have until if you don't get it done, they're going to die? That's a good question. Um, a lot of times, a bone marrow transplantation can only happen if you have a bone marrow donor. That is the biggest towards ha making a bone marrow transplantation happen. Let me give you an example of someone perhaps with an underlying malignancy acute myeloid leukemia, which has an about 85% cure rate with upfront chemotherapy. That means there is a subset of patients who will relapse. When they do, the oncologists are quite familiar with understanding the biology of the leukemia and recognizing that certain types of leukemias will not be cured completely with just chemotherapy. So, a lot of times the referral to a transplanter is made early so that we can start the process of looking for a suitable bone marrow donor. When we do that, we obviously can proceed to transplant once we make sure that children can tolerate the chemotherapy that we're giving them. So that involves a period of about two weeks where 
uh, we just make sure that all of their organ functions are intact or as optimal as possible. They're not experiencing any ongoing infections because we are going to wipe out their immune system. So we need to make sure that everything is under control. Um, so it is a, a very carefully planned process uh, with a plenty of time usually to plan. However, there are instances where we don't have that luxury and we have been able to take patients to transplant over a span of two weeks. Okay, all right. Well, um, very good. I know you're working on a really tough problem. The good thing is at least there's a, a pretty good success rate, um, but the consequences are very serious. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're you're looking at the microbiome and you're considering it. And uh, I'm sure you're going to learn a whole bunch of things that will apply to many other situations. So that's, that's fantastic. But what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? And if they have, you know, God forbid, a child with these problems, where can they start looking for help? The best way to find us is on the Cincinnati Children's website. Okay. Well, very good. Pooja, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.